the secret of life is eat as much peanut butter as you can, protect your big brother from no good women, and listen to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile every day. Spun Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. If you're a fan of country music, you most certainly have heard the lyrics and melody of our guest out by the woodpile today. Bill Luther is the songwriter who has had his tunes cut by the likes of Kenny Chesney, Tim McGraw, Faith Hill, Mark Wills, and many more. Bill tells us the story of his struggle to get traction in the music industry and what was behind some of the songs that became timeless radio classics. We start out by the two of us trying to piece together the first time we met over 25 years ago. I remember the, the first day I met you because I was working as a valet car park at TGI Fridays in the Elliston area of Nashville, Tennessee. And I was just standing there. And I think earlier that day or the day before, I had bought a CD by the Hot House Flowers. And out of the blue comes this guy with wild curly hair wearing a kind of a jacket and a tie. And he just like, the new Hot House Flowers. I mean, it's, just, it's just wonderful. It's great. If you don't have it, you got to get it. I'm like... I thought someone was playing a prank on me, that they knew I'd had that record, and, and it was you. And you just didn't say hi or nothing, or, you know, I'm, I'm so-and-so. You just, you just started talking about the hot flowers. That's how I met you. You were a door guy at TGI Fridays, struggling songwriter. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny, too, because I remember that night as well. Really? Yeah, I remember that night. And, uh, you know, like you meet people and you got all that kind of energy going and stuff. And whatever's whatever's on your mind at that time, you're just talking about it and stuff like that. And I always felt like music was a really great way to just kind of like break the ice. Mm -hmm. Because back then I was also very evangelical in the sense of like or evangelistic or in the sense of like uh, wanting to tell people right to, about everything want to tell yeah. people about something yeah you know but um yeah tj fridays was great uh friends of ours had worked there before we got there and actually it's the second restaurant that we ever ate in when we came down to nashville and it was unbelievable because i kind of came like from the country like you did you're from pennsylvania right originally. yeah up there in the sticks i'd been to pittsburgh back and forth and stuff but never like lived in the city or was going to be living in the city now, was this eerie actually about 35 minutes below Erie, a small town called Conneaut Lake, Pennsylvania, which actually had the second blue streak in the world, uh-huh. was there at Conneaut Lake Park. Uh, the park was huge back in the day. I mean, everything you can think of that happened around that place, everything from gangsters to whatever. <laughs> the lake was a natural spring-fed lake, still is. The water's always fresh. Uh, it's one of the largest glacier lakes uh, in America. And then on top of the lake being so cool and the country and all that kind of stuff, they the greatest custard in the world it's unbelievable there's one here, there's one there and there's one down in florida and it's on the top 10 list of custard people actually come from miles around to get there and get that one year we got up there and we were actually the first one with a license plate from tennessee and it was the first time we got to be the ones that oh. were we got to you know be x out the because they had it from all the states uh-huh. and it didn't, wouldn't take any time at all for that the, the whole thing to you know fill up well anyway we were up there and stuff we were kids and uh, i met my wife when i was 18 we got married when we were 20 John Trevethan had moved down here, and uh, he had known John Barner and uh, some other people in the music business, and he was working for a company down there called Interstate Theatrical Lighting and Supply. And we came down, John basically got me a job working there as the quote-unquote uh, rental manager, 
And, you know, we talked about Dick Dooley, how he was the guy that had the reptile farm on 65 North and <laughs> been bitten by rattlesnakes and all the stories, the black mamas on a train in India, you know, where they got loose and the little Indian came, kid came up and said, Sup, you have asp, asp? He said, yeah, and he went back there. The kid opened the door and he went in there. It was black, dark, I mean, pitch dark, black, whatever. And the kid closed the door on him. So Dick said he had to sit on the train till it stopped. You know, they get the snakes, pick them up, put them back in the basket. But right around that time, too, you know, I had friends that worked out at TGI Fridays, and that's why I went down. And I love TGI Fridays. But like I said earlier, the first time I'd been there was the second time we went to a restaurant in Nashville. The first was the Spaghetti Factory, and the second was TGI Fridays. It was so fun. The way the food was Mm -hmm. just steaming and people were running, it was just like, it was really an experience. And that Fridays, actually, was the third original Fridays, New York, Dallas, Nashville. So. Now, you wanted to be a, a songwriter in the country music industry, I right. assume. Right, I did. Now, most people don't probably understand that, country fans. Maybe they do. But, you know, I think I grew up thinking that, like, George Jones wrote all his songs. Right. But that's not the case. In fact, a lot of them don't write any stuff. Right. So you had an awareness of that up in Pennsylvania. Well, I had a, I had started playing when I got in the church. That somebody would give me a guitar, and I started playing and writing just all the time. And then different people were like, hey, you need to get up and play and stuff like that. And I actually thought I was going to get involved with gospel music and uh, because of what I was doing. But at the time, I was really still, and I listened to some of those recordings, well, it's been a while, but they were songs about life. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't overtly, covertly subliminal, but they were just, they were more about life. If, and I don't know if I ever played any of those songs back then, um, but they weren't necessarily flat-out gospel music. Right. So, And I kind of thought in some way I'd get involved with that when I got down to Nashville. And uh, it was really weird. That door closed. It was a really weird thing. I couldn't even begin to... And it wasn't a forced thing. It was... I've always had that kind of feeling that you kind of... Doors open, doors close. And I'd met with some people, and it was just never got anywhere. And it was kind of a click, and you really had to be... This is the gospel music industry? Yeah, and you yeah. remember... I mean, people, like, really that were doing it, look, they were really in shape and looked great and wearing, you know... <laughs> I mean, it was really amazing. And I used to think, wow, is that what it's all about? It was mm-hmm. really kind of clicky. But at the same time, it was also really great. Mm-hmm. And I love so much of it on, on every part of the spectrum. I don't care if it's Stephen Curtis Chapman or, you know, the 77s. It's mm-hmm. like, I love great songwriting. So when I came down... I was already a country music fan. I'd grown up listening to people like um, Tom T. Hall and uh, my dad's Johnny Cash records and didn't really like Haggard at the time, didn't really like Hank Williams Scene at the time. They kind of grew on me later to how brilliant they were with Jambalaya and then Haggard songs and stuff. But I got down here and I thought, you know, I want to write country music. But at the time when I came down here, it just wasn't really something I could write. It was very different, very hooky, you know, the real kind of hook kind of, you know. Right. Prop me up by the jukebox and yeah. just uh, and, and really great stuff too. I mean, uh, Keith Whitley was around at that time, and I loved him. Songs like "I'm No Stranger to the Rain." I'm no stranger to the rain. I'm a friend of thunder. Friend is it any wonder lightning's drives me? And uh, but it just looked impossible to get into it and do it. So it was a long journey, man. So. If I remember correctly, you got signed to a publishing deal, right? Right. And what was the name of that? The first publishing deal was with a really great lady, Karen Conrad, who signed me to AMR Music. So how did that work? Did you just go play for her on your guitar? I did. I, did. I actually almost got a cut on Alabama the first year I was here. And now I remember that. Yeah, it was, it was controversial. It was really close. What was the story behind that, if you don't mind telling it? Well, uh, Buddy Blackman's wife, I can't think of her net first name, but she was a real sweetheart. They were setting up for the... Uh, the steeplechase and actually one of the princes uh princesses was coming in but she actually came to the steeplechase and stuff and they were setting up well i'd set up lights from you know interstate theatrical lighting and supply well buddy's wife was still doing all the stuff and i had nothing to do and i just was bored and you know i walked i said you guys need some help 
So I helped him and stuff like that for quite a while. And it was fun because it was something to do. And then she said, later, why are you here? I said, well, you know, I don't want to say this, but it's like, I know you all hear this, but I want to be a writer. I want to be a songwriter. He said, oh, you got to meet my, my husband, Buddy Blackman. He wrote a big song for Randy Travis. And so I put a tape together and I gave it to Buddy. I never thought I'd hear anything back. And he called me back. And I went to his house and stuff, and it was unbelievably exciting. Here's a guy that wrote, you know, 1982, and he had played on the soundtrack of the uh, you know, Smoking the Bandit stuff, just a re and a really cool cat, and a great banjo player. And we wrote this song, and then uh, Barry Beckett put it on hold. It was through EMI over there, and that's when I signed up with BMI, met Jody Williams, and, and, then, and then we heard that Randy heard it and liked the song, and then we heard all of a sudden Barry Beckett, something happened, and he left the project and took all the songs with him and I'll never forget <laughs> which my, happens a lot it does and my dad was really like prophetic he said this and I've never forgotten it. he said you know what he said you know I he said I think if you'd have got that song recorded by those guys he said it probably would have ruined you and I said yeah because I thought I knew what I was doing mm -hmm. and you never know what you're doing the sky is blue and the sun is shining I feel like a bum with a pocket full of time So that's how you got your publishing deal. Now, explain to folks how that works. Like, you kind of get a salary, yeah. but then, of course, if you ever have a hit, you have to pay all that money back eventually, right? Yeah, well, the first deal I got was a song by song, which was perfect. And I remember reading this in Bob McDill's close-up interview where Bob had had all these things he laid out for writers, and I didn't understand why he would do that. I thought, man, why is he telling me about all these secrets? Mm -hmm. And I found out because people don't listen. Right. But uh, he recommended it. They don't. People will not listen. I'm telling you, it's amazing. It's like you would try to give people the basics, you know. First of all, I, I was amazed that she was going to sign me because even then I thought these songs are no good. And I really think that she saw things in these songs. Potential. Yeah, she saw some potential there. Anyway, so she did a single song thing. We did that for a while, and I worked. I worked at different... I can't remember where I was working. Maybe at Fridays or still maybe... Uh, I might have been working at Erickson Marketing, doing that stuff over there. I used to be their courier. So they end up building this catalog of songs. Right. And the goal is to eventually get it to a producer right. or an artist. And right. hopefully they'll, they'll like it and they'll say, okay, oh, I want to record that. Yeah. Well, in the process of writing, basically, you're going to write bad songs. You're going to write good songs. You just hope they just looking for that one to float up. Because a lot of times, even people that write a bunch of great songs, you know, it's hard to get songs cut. Or mm -hmm. I don't want to say hard, but it can be. Mm -hmm. It can be difficult. How many country music artists are, are have albums out in a year i mean it, it's got to be under well, like it's a lot now i mean the town has really changed right you know and uh, but at that time yeah at that time there was like uh there was like a like a graduating class small graduating class of yeah. the people that you were trying the joe diffies and the uh, tracy lawrences and and uh, just you could just a whole bunch of people you could name like steve warner or mm -hmm. or or you know bands like uh shenandoah or whoever i mean that was kind of before but there was a bunch of people at that time that you try to get, you know, get right. songs to. But it's a limited amount of people. Yeah, there's thousands of songs out right. there. Exactly. Yeah. There's this sifting process when you're in the kind of in this machine of how it happens, where songs that I think we've always believed this, and I think it's true. It's proven out and proven out that the great songs arise at the top. Because mm -hmm. really, with country music, they're looking for a hit song. It's not really, albums have never really been like a concept record. There's been, you know, Willie Nelson did the Red Haired Stranger and stuff like that. And they have been concept records, but it's, it's really about, you know, that focus on that song for the radio, you know what I'm saying? And really the 70s, they were the same way. The Beatles, they only put their really best things out there, you know what I'm saying? That thing, and let's look at it. There's a ton of number ones they did. They were just great, unbelievable. Mm -hmm. So they shoot for that here too as well. 
it's a little different now. There's a lot more artists now, and the town's changing in, 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 in ways that I don't know that I'm really qualified at this point because I'm just now kind of coming back into it, mm -hmm. you know. But um, for me, you know, it was exciting because you kept trying. You get a song on hold, and mm -hmm. then you think that it would get dropped, or then, right. you know, or sometimes you get a song recorded and that it didn't make the record, you know. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of hurdles to it, but you're continually learning to get better. Like, you're continuing to say to yourself, look, is if... Am I doing something that is great? First of all, I always said this, and this is way back, goes back with you and me, is I always said, and Marvin, I had these little sayings, um, you know, the secret to greatness is learning how to recognize it. And when you can't see something that's great, you can never really aspire to that. Mm -hmm. Or if it looks impossible, how are you going to do it? And that's what some of these guys, like the different people like Zig Ziglar and who are even the new guys right now that, uh, you know, that are trying to inspire people to like think beyond or outside of the box. But, and it's really sometimes it's, it's that simple and it's that hard because if you are really looking at what you're doing and you set the sights at that, you know what I'm saying? It's better to fall from setting your sights high than setting your sights low. And you're honest with yourself and you go, look, if I had a record deal right now, would I record this? And I had a record deal on DreamWorks. You know, we cut half a record and I could see well, it. I want to get to that. Yeah. yeah. It's like, would you do that? And it's like, and that's how hard you're going to be. And now it's even worse than that. But it's good. Mm -hmm. It's challenging. We talk about that later. Is what was I thinking? I got to catch it. song I remember that I think got recorded and went to a CD of yours and was a big deal because I think yeah. we, I went and bought it in fact it was a Fraser River yeah yeah Fraser River Band. I was so cool I thought it was so cool that you bought it you said yeah. you went and got it I said, dude you went and bought it and that? it's a good record uh, now whatever happened with that like they put out a song called Tangled Up in Texas mm -hmm. Tangled Up in Texas it was a really great song man they had a Jimmy Webb song on there um, they had that a, a really cool song Greg Barnhill wrote uh, called uh, Birmingham Steel it was a really good record. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was exciting to be on it and to go to the store and see your name on it and go, yeah. wow, it was just really a, it was a big thing. And I was probably, in all reality, that cut in a lot of ways, and I'm not trying to be dramatic, but I was about that close to probably losing that writing deal because I'd had it for a while and it had not had a cut. This is the first cut I got. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mark Wright was the producer. And then, of course, I met Danny, and we're still to this day like the best of friends. Danny Frazier, you're right. talking about, yeah. Yeah, there was something that happened. I can't remember the exact details. It's dangerous to talk about stuff like this. Mm -hmm. But there was some kind of little thing, you know, that happened, and uh, it just didn't, it, it, you know, it, it was just very common. Right. You know, it's the like, album didn't do all that well. Right, yeah. It, it didn't do that great. Yeah. It's a shame, but, but again, the market is crowded, and, and a lot of great things will get lost. Right. His voice was so different, though. Uh, yeah. That's the one thing I thought, that that voice would just mm -hmm. kind of cut through, you know. That's why I'm here. My heart is running on empty. These country roads are calling me back to who I am. I think also I remember during that time period was you end up singing on a demo. You would sing on people's demos for them, right? Well, not really. Really? I would do it for friends. Yeah. You know. Yeah, but you say, you have a good voice. That's and, that's moving forward to when we start getting stuff cut, and it was because they weren't letting me sing my own demos in the beginning, uh, which is not a big thing. Okay. You know, probably wasn't even you know. And then when I started doing my own demos, I started getting cuts. Okay. 
Well, it's interesting because I remember you did one song that ended up being like enormous. Gigantic, yeah. Yeah. Is it Amazed? Yeah, Lone Star Amazed. Yeah, you sang on the demo. They heard your version of it first. Your hair all around me Baby, you surround me You touch every place in my heart Now, who wrote that song? Um, that's Amy Mayo. Uh-huh. Chris Lindsay and Marv Green. Right. They wrote that. Who were your partners for... Yeah, we'd, the, we'd already been writing stuff. I just wasn't there that day. Uh-huh. What a day not to be there, oh, huh? Man. <laughs> I'll tell you what. But uh, Marv asked if I'd do it, and Marv's a great guy, and I said, yeah, I'll do it. And I knew... Actually, this is no kidding, dude. I'm not lying one bit. This is, you know, the truth. I got in there and was singing it, and I was like, wow. I knew it was great. Mm-hmm. But I remember, when, I remember when I was in there singing it, though... And I sang the hell out of it. I, mean, I actually have a recording of it where they re-released it with these, where they did a thing on demo singers. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought, who's going to do this? Mm-hmm. And then uh, one of their plugging guys, or one of their, their A&R people, got it, I think, to Dan Huff. And Dan Huff was producing Lone Star and just made it happen. Mm-hmm. And it's weird because the guys in the band had done an article. and um, Talking about Lone Star? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He said that when they first heard it, all they heard was me. And that was like in a, in a, uh, a publication when I thought, that's really great. That's a that's, that's good, uh, good compliment. Yeah. I don't know how you do what you do. I'm so in love with you. It just keeps getting better. So oh. you started writing with Amy Mayo. Right. Right. Now she's the daughter of... Danny Mayo. Yeah. Who's written some unbelievable stuff. Jesus and Mama and just some really unbelievable stuff. Right. Uh, Keeper of the Stars. And it was great, too, because, you know, a lot of people that met Amy, I, at least I got to say her dad introduced me. Mm-hmm. And he just felt like she'd be a good fit for me because I really? play guitar and stuff like that. And we just hit it off, uh-huh. you know. And it's like, I, I mean, I always look at Amy as like a sister, you know. Mm-hmm. One of the funny stories is when we went down into uh, Polygram, they had coffee and we didn't have coffee. Karen didn't have any coffee. So we went down there. Her dad was right down there. And that's where um, uh, Bob McDill wrote and all that stuff. We could go in one door, go all the way down the hallway, and then there's a kitchen go in there and go back out and then go back down the hall and keep going and go out the other door. Well, we went in there and walked by the receptionist like, hey, you know, whatever, like, you know, guilty all over our faces. Because you wanted free coffee. Went in and grabbed some coffee bags. We're going out the other door. <laughs> we opened the door and she was waiting for us. And I was just like, oh, crap. And I just kept walking uh-huh. and went back down into our office and Amy was still there. And then Amy came and she goes, Bill, she said, you just left me there. You left me there. I said, man, it was every man for himself. <laughs> But uh, anyway, her and I had a lot of fun and stuff. And when I met her, we started writing a lot of stuff. And one day, she said, Bill, she said, we need to start writing songs that are, uh, how'd she say it? Not better songs, but songs that are serious or something. I can't remember exactly what she said, but like we were writing stuff that was just stupid. Mm -hmm. You know, and she's like, we got to write some songs that matter, you know. Mm -hmm. And then we uh, ended up writing a couple cool things. Uh, She had like the complete lyric on a song called... um, Something real. Shauna Patroni, she was fantastic. She was absolutely drop dead gorgeous. Really super nice girl. Was in a, 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 a Tracy Lawrence video or something like that. And Alex, uh, Alex Torres, I think, found her and started producing her stuff. And they did a record on CBS that was really great. Well, she cut something real. And Amy had written all those lyrics. I think I might have wrote a couple lines in that. She just handed it to me. You know, I put the music and melody to it and stuff. And if I'm feeling weak, I need your strength to make me strong. It 
had a sing on a video, just never happened. It was such a bummer. And then, um, and then we got a, a cut with Milo Mason, a song called Closer to Heaven, which turned out to be really a really cool thing. I've been searching for so long, something I couldn't find. Choices I made were so wrong, you came in only got to like um, 38 or 37 but it was on the charts for so long that it paid really good you know what I'm saying and I'll never forget not gigantic but I'll never right and a lot of this money you have to pay back to the company oh right? no this is radio money you get your radio money radio money comes to you oh, okay uh, and it's all changed that's a whole other subject right there about how mechanicals are changing stuff like okay. that they would recoup off mechanicals and of course they have a part of the single too because they publish, they have a section of it too mm -hmm. you have a part of it and, uh, and really, I had no co-publish, just a straight-up publishing deal on that song. And I'll never forget, I went up to the mailbox, and there was a check in there from uh, BMI. And uh, it was, I think it was like um, $23,000. Whoa! Yeah, which was really great. And, I, and I, I ran up and told my chef, I said, look at this, she was all excited. And believe it or not, this is the honest truth, man, we went ahead and paid off all our credit cards. Wow. That's great because a lot of people would have went and bought a boat. Well, I told her, I said, we could, buy a, we could buy a truck with this right now, you know, and, and both of us together. And that's how we've done the good things. And separately, we've made the mistakes. But together, we always do the good things. And uh, we wrote those checks. We had some money left over. We bought a couch and a chair or something like yeah. that. And, bought a carton of cigarettes and some lottery tickets. Yeah. <laughs> a kilo. No, just kidding. Yeah, I got us a kilo. But, um, it was exciting, you know. But, yeah. I mean, and then bigger checks were to come. Yeah. I mean, uh, beyond your imagination. It was like, wow, I couldn't yeah. believe it. Her dad is a Cajun and her mama is a Mexican maiden. They met on the border of Texas and Louisiana. There with the cotton they raised such a beautiful daughter. Wild as the wind, but I hope that I finally caught her. But in the process of that, I thought I was going to get a George Strait cut. And um, I was working two jobs. I was at this job, and I called this place, and uh, I heard it was Sean Camp. It's called Bandana Anna. And we thought he was going to cut it, and I called the receptionist. Didn't even have you thinking to talk to Sean. And she goes, oh, I'm so sorry. And as soon as she said that, I thought, oh, crap. I said, for what? She said, well, George didn't cut that song. And I remember I was so devastated that I quit that job I was working at. I was working at service merchandise, and I just walked up and said, hey, man, I'm done. Sorry. I just walked out. <laughs> I mean, it's like that's so much. It just slaughtered me, but that's... That, and, and I'm glad I told that story because that's what this stuff's like. I mean, it's yeah. really brutal. It's um, it, it, The highs are high and the lows are low. Right. And the in-betweens are boring. I mean, obviously, this, this stuff kind of snowballs. Like, people at least aware of you and say, well, I had that song with Mila Mason. or So it kind of opens more doors, do you think? No, I, th I think those little I those isolated incidents are more, more static than mm -hmm. they are viral or whatever you want to call them. But I think what happens, though, is that as you... It's almost like what uh, Andy Warhol said. You know, it's 95% or whatever showing up. Oh, Woody Allen. Yeah, Woody yeah. Allen. Yeah. My, my bad. Yeah. Another guy. No, another no weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> what happened was it just... It's like you just keep going for it. You keep saying to yourself... And I remember even being in the room with people. And this sounds bad, but it's the only way I can really measure this conversationally to make sense is that I'd be in the room with people and they'd keep bringing titles and I'd be like, dude, I mean, we need a real title. We... Mm -hmm. You know, uh, my cat wears a cowboy hat. I mean, I, <laughs> Was that a real one? I don't know. Probably. <laughs> but I mean, there'd be the, or there'd be something that's just really lame that they would take. You know, it take Hugh Prestwood, like you know, he took and wrote that song, "The Suit." You know, that 
James Taylor cut and they didn't put on the record, which was, oh gosh, what a brilliant suit. And there's a ghost in this house and the uh -huh. song remembers when, you know, he can write something out of anything. Well, of uh -huh. course, the song remembers when is a great title. Uh -huh. And and then melodically and stuff. And <laughs> I'm sorry if <laughs> the laugh about the cat on the cat way had to tell you what. <laughs> but that's, you're right. Oh, but a lot of dumb stuff like that does get cut. Yeah. I, I mean, I could tell you recent stuff that was those, and I'm like, wow. But, um, <laughs> So it's like you got to have a great idea, and, and 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 not only that, I just really think something real and great has to happen, you know. <laughs> Sorry, dude, I've heard them all too. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> interview over. <laughs> oh, okay. I've heard worse than that. I say. I say actually a great title, really. Compared, <laughs> that's like way up there compared to some of the crap I've I've heard people tell you, but um. Oh, oh man, it's, it's tragic, you know. Yeah. But um, and that's a hard thing. It's like, and 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 it's not like I was smarter or better than anybody, but I, I could see it. I'm like, we've. The biggest thing that happened for us that really illustrates this is all right. The Everywhere record came out on Tim McGraw. Me and Amy got the record. She bought a copy. I bought a copy, and we were. I was listening to the truck. She was listening to the house, and we're looking at each other, going like, "What the fark? <laughs> How are we going to do this?" You know, where the green grass grows, and uh, j I, uh, just to see you smile, and, and yeah. I mean, we were like, how are we going to do this? We were like overwhelmed, and I mean, it really was. It was it was tragic. It was like, we're not writing anything that's like this. I mean, we suck. Mm -hmm. And it's so weird because Chris Lindsay, him and Steve Dukes, they get together, and they write a song called Place in the Sun. And they get a timber gar cut, and we find out about it, we're like, we're like, what the crap, man? And like, you know, we're all friends and stuff like that, but you know, friends is friends, you know right. what I'm saying? It's like, you know, it's like the same time, you're like, hey, where's where's my spaghetti, uh -huh. you know? And uh, it just really made us stop and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. If Steve, well, and Steve had had a couple big hits. He'd written uh, Like It, I Love It. Mm -hmm. It was on a record before that or a couple back. And he also wrote uh, that Bigger Than the Eagles, We Gotta Love Bigger Than the Eagles, or Higher Than the Eagles, mm -hmm. or whatever. Bigger Than the Beatles, Flying Higher Than the Eagles. Great song. So he'd already had a couple big hits. So they wrote this song, we're flipped out about it, thought, well, we can write one too. And we sat down and literally, this is no lie, I'd had the music, I'd throw it out a couple times, thank God people said no. Because it was perfect, as it came in, Amy said, Bill, she said, I've been looking at People Magazine, and everybody in here is calls their wife and their husband my best friend. Mm -hmm. And she said, we need to write a song, You can write a, we'll write a song for Michelle for uh, Valentine's Day. And I'm like, cool, let's do it. And then we just started playing it, and she had this line, she said, I never had no one I could count on. I never had no one I could count on. And I was like, here we go. Mm -hmm. And we just took off from there. And the, we wrote that whole song probably in, I mean, I don't, it's not to brag, but it's weird how these songs happen. Like they say the, the great songs, they happen fast, maybe 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't even know if we changed anything. It just kept coming out, coming mm -hmm. out, coming out. Anyway, so we wrote this, demoed it, and we decided we were going to try to pitch it to Missy Gallimore, who was, who was Byron's uh, uh, wife, and she was also like, the song person, you know what I mean? She was that was her. She picked songs and that had that kind of management job. Forget songs she she picked of mine. She picked other people's songs that I just you know I'll never forget. Grown men don't cry and and one of these days. I mean she's unbelievable, man. Anyway, we we're afraid to pitch to her and we did and she liked it. And then you know about a week later we got this phone call at BMG and Amy was screaming on the phone, Bill, get in here and said Tim was going to cut our song in two weeks. So now we got to cut. So then here comes Chris going, wait a minute. He got a cut. He got, which ended up being the title track. He goes, now you guys got a cut. We need to write a song together. This is no lie, man. We sat down and we wrote Seventeen, mm -hmm. and Seventeen was a, was a song that was on that record too. And when mm -hmm. Tim cut Great. that, I couldn't believe it. Seventeen, living on crazy. 
And at some point, did you think like you had all this disappointment? Like this is not going to happen. Uh, you're just scared. You're, you're you're always scared. Like as you come up through this whole thing, there's all this fear and trepidation that like, well, they're going to change their mind, or right. they won't make the record. Yeah. But it's like there was also a feeling that it's really hard for me to think back. Like when I had my kids, when my wife, when you're having a baby, it's like there's something that happens there that's really flipped out, and it's very different. You don't feel mm -hmm. it anywhere else. It's just it's right there, and it's only going to happen right there. Mm -hmm. And it may be different, you know, stuff like that. But it was that feeling that also we just felt like it was going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be okay. And then it turned out in that same little bit of time, I had this song that had been on hold with Kenny Chesney. It was on hold with somebody else, too, that I really liked, by the way. And I went in and said, look, you know, why is this song, the second hold, you know, it, it needs to be the first hold, not this other thing, as far as artists, you know what I mean? Because Kenny was just, and I was a huge fan of Kenny, mm -hmm. you know. And I liked this other guy, too, really a lot, too. But I was a huge fan of Kenny. Been for a long time. Forever heard this other guy. Well, at the same time, though, another guy that was on the other side of the song, Tom Danfier's guys, they somehow they got it to Kenny, I think, somehow, and he heard it, and he cut that. What I need to do. What I need to do is turn this car around. He cut that, and he cut the crap out of this beautiful man. I could, when I heard, I flipped out. Make her see how sorry I am. Well, that should be so hard, but I drive. Yes, I drive, drive on and on and on. It was so exciting to hear, like, you know, because you go in for a little bit short bit of time and try to capture, like, a little picture, you know, in this B-side demo session thing. With great players, don't get me wrong, and you can get magic out of there. And But then when you hear the record, the record's always like, oh, man, it's like, geez. Because mm -hmm. they just take it, you know, they just take it to the wall. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then he cut another song that uh, me and Amy wrote called California, which is kind of a tragic song. And I couldn't believe that Kenny did that. She lived at the end of a little dirt road In a house where secrets go untold Barefoot in a cotton dress Dark hair in a tangled mess All this is happening at once. It's all happening at once, but I think what it is was there were just seeds that were starting to come up. And it's like, it wasn't like any kind of, you know, I mean, I thank God for every, I mean, you know, I mean, I mean Amy and I would pray, you know. She'd say, let's pray, Bill. We'd pray right there and just pray, you know. And she'd say this prayer, and I love it. And she'd just give it to God, you know. We're just, you know, and we did that here recently with a song. It's amazing when it starts to happen and things like that. And um, it's a relief, but at the same time, I don't think you ever really enjoy it. Because you're trying to do more and you're trying to keep it rolling. And, yeah. I, I still remember the first time I ever heard my best friend, and I, I don't think it had been held yet. I, I, I'm not sure where it was, but we at least I did. I think I played you the demo. Well, I, this is what I remember. You got some gig at a nursing home, or people like a hospice thing. I'm not sure what it was, but because that time I was working with handicapped folks, and you asked, hey, would you bring your guitar and you can play your songs? Because, you know, you've never been around that kind of stuff. Because and, and the wing we were in, I think, may have been the Alzheimer's wing. Oh, yeah. It was a little bit nuts. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so anyway. Wow, that's amazing. I remember that now. So, yeah, so, you know, we're playing our songs, and we're playing fun stuff. But then you start playing the song that I was just like, just staring at you because it was a really beautiful song. And it was my best friend. And wow. I think, again, it wasn't before Tim McGraw had held it yet. But right in the middle of it, maybe before you could even get to the this half of the second verse or second chorus, 
all of a sudden this old man with this kind of PVC pipe cage. Oh, that's right. He, he was gets gonna up. shut us down. Yeah, he, he started ramming your he's guitar like, with it. He's like, that's it. It's it. We're, we're shutting this down. <laughs> I can't believe you remember that. Yeah. It was amazing. We are three, I love that story. It was bizarre. He like, just came up out of nowhere. Yeah. Like, we're shutting this down. We're I, shutting this down. I was truly in awe about the song because I think that's what the best thing ever written. All of a sudden we're getting attacked by an old guy with PVC pipes. Oh, God love him, dude. Did we survive that? I can't believe it. I mean, did, well, yeah, some texts came and pulled him away. And we. Yeah, that deer in the headlight look like I don't think I can finish, but what we we yeah, finished it was okay. And that's crazy, dude. Oh man, I remember that. That is amazing. <laughs> and I forgot that part as I was remembering this whole thing. He came up and was going to shut the deal. Yeah, down. I don't know if he damaged your guitar or not, but he was definitely ramming yeah, it. Yeah, he was our first protester. <laughs> <laughs> this ain't happening in here, baby. Yeah. And oh, we just get closer I fall in love all over Every time I look at you Okay, so you had some hits with Kenny Chesney and Tim McGraw, and then come to find out Tim McGraw's married to a gal. Faith Hill. Yeah. Well, exactly what happened here, and it's really weird, is that at the time, we still just, we had cuts happening. Mm -hmm. We had, like, cuts. And I can't remember the exact timelines on stuff. You know, they were they were you know going on the records. We were waiting. There's this process of stuff. And I got in a phone call from Missy Gallimore. Before this, we had done this March project, where we put together a record, and the four of us worked together. We wanted to kind of do something like a band would do it. All, all the songwriters that you well, with. me, Marv, and Chris and Amy, we, we did this, and we actually they wanted to sign us for a deal on uh, DreamWorks. Another story, but um. And we just started writing these songs and stuff like that. And the first project just was amazing, you know. We had some just really great songs on there, really different. I mean, that people liked them so much in the studio because we were just getting way outside the line. Is that the one where there's a foot on the front? Of yeah. It? Yeah. Amy's foot. But um, <laughs> none of us were going to put our foot on there. <laughs> Amy had the normal foot. The rest of us, you know, guy foot. Right. Feet, whatever. But anyway, so we worked on this, and it, and it was really neat things were happening. Somehow, some things, I don't know if it was Ron Stuvie or Karen... Or who had pulled together and other people at BMI that were really cool, you know, and stuff, and helping with this. But they sponsored this thing. We went and played. We did this little thing. We played. And we took the CDs with us and everything like that. Well, we played uh, Let's Make Love. Let's make love all night long until all our strength is gone. Gallimore's son, Eric Gallimore, he grabbed the thing and took off and took it to Missy. And um, they freaked out and they wanted to cut those two songs, which we couldn't believe. They wanted to cut Let's Make Love and they wanted to cut There Will Come a Day, mm -hmm. and which is just this huge gospel song, which I was so amazed. But anyway, so that had happened. That's where that all came, kind of came from. Well, you know, you kind of wait for stuff to happen. You know, you're busy and whatever. And I get this phone call and it's uh, Missy Gallimore. And it was her. She said, Bill, I just want to tell you. He said, Get ready. And I said, What? And she said, Faith cut two of your songs, and this was on a really huge record. It was on the Breathe record that mm -hmm. I don't even know how many it sold so far now. Yeah, but uh, and I about fell out of the chair. I was like, "Wow, this is amazing." Until the sun comes 
Now let's make love. That I remember the video was shot in Paris. Yeah, it's amazing. With, with Tim and yeah. Faith. You know, it's weird too as a writer. It's like I wanted a video. I Man, we gotta have a video. You know, mm -hmm. I hadn't really had a video. Mm -hmm. You know, Kenny hadn't done any or anything like that. And I thought, well, that's our first video, but that's a pretty daggone good one. Right. There will come a day. I think I remember. It was nine eleven. Yeah. That she sang that with a choir. Yeah. And they played it on stations. It was so almost. Uh, it was almost really apocalyptic or not apocalyptic, mm -hmm. prophetic. You know, the, the stuff coming down and everything like that, it was really weird. I saw her at a number one hit party for my best friend, and uh, she came up and she said, she, she, she told me this was amazing, and she said, you're, she said, one of my favorite singers, Bill. And I said, I don't even know what to say. I said, because I love what you did. I mean, I love back was, when... Was that the party I was watching your kids at? Was that um, one of the BMG building or was close by there? Well... Or BMI building, I mean. You would have been there, though. Didn't you go? Yeah, I think so, yeah. You were there. I was, my job was to watch your kids, make sure they didn't like go swimming in I the punch say, or something. I would say, Tim, please help us with the kids. Cause <laughs> we don't know what they're going to... They may try to rob the place. Who knows? I remember Faith asking me to make out by, by the dumpster. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah but Man, I, you, I turned her down. I was so like, lucky. Yeah. I had to watch your kids. <laughs> See, that's my fault. Yeah. Well, they like to call them hippies, outlaws with guitars, but they brought a little poetry to the honky tonks and bars. They might have got a little crazy, they might have flew a little too high. Somewhere somebody's playing their songs tonight. When we found out at that party, I remember Josh Keir was there, and uh, Josh, the guy I'd been writing with, and he's doing really great. He's written a bunch of great stuff. He's really gotten big. Tim had cut, for the next record, a song we wrote called uh, Set the Circus Down. Baby, you're the one smiling with me when the sun comes up. I got the wheel, you got the map, and that's enough. And we go rolling down this highway. I remember I went out to look for Josh, and I found Josh. I said, come on, I want you to meet Tim. I took him up to meet Tim, and Tim talked about the record and everything mm -hmm. like that. It was really a cool thing. I, I was glad that I was at presence of mind to think about somebody other than myself. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, I forgot this whole speech I had for my wife that was, oh, I hated this. It was like the biggest failure because this song I wrote for her. and Tell about my best friend? Yeah, because Amy was pregnant and was talking about this. She was really saying these really great things, and I just kind of like, you know, I was listening to what she was saying and stuff like that, and I kind of got off track. And then, uh, so I didn't make my speech about Michelle, so I felt terrible. Well, she kept you, so. One of these days we'll find a piece of ground Just outside some sleepy little town And set this circus down Okay, so, if you don't want to talk about this, it's fine, but all the success, I remember as a friend that you said that some of the stuff that kind of bothered you was like, a lot of people that maybe you had tried to write with before, or you try had tried to work with before, they they didn't give you the time of the day. Right. You know, they didn't have time for you. You're, you're nobody. But now you got these hits, and they're really eager to to work with you. And it gets you can't tell what what people where they're at. Like, are they really do they really believe I'm great? Or are they just uh, wanting to get in on the, the bandwagon? Well, or? I think we all kind of chase the money. You know, it's like when things are happening, we kind of chase it. And you know, the funny thing is for me is like. Like Bob Regan taught me this. He showed me in a very loving way, in a great way, and he's still a dear friend of mine. You know, that you know, I wasn't ready. And it was gonna hurt me to get into the room because people could be like, Well, I tried to write with him, he didn't have crap. I would say to anybody right now wanting to be a writer, you know, begin to write down titles. 
begin to, to work on your melodies and begin to really, really look at what's out there, what's playing. I mean, not just the old stuff, because the old stuff is going to always be great. It's like these records for baseball. You got Babe Ruth that hit, what, 61 home runs? That was the record. Then they turn around and, you know, Barry McGuire, he breaks the record and Sammy Sosa, whatever. Well, really, now with all the steroids, they really didn't break the record. Right. It's, it's the steroid record, you know? <laughs> So those great old songs, whether it's Tom T. Hall or, or Charlie Rich or, you know, or uh, Jim Reeves, all that, Patsy Cline, all that, that stuff's always going to be great. But the music now, it's changing. And writers have got to really look at what's really an opportunity. Mm -hmm. These cool tracks, what's going down and stuff like that. Because I've been listening, like, you know, we'll get into that later about this other gig I had. But, like, just really listening to music and how great it was and going, oh, crap, mm -hmm. you know. But you have to really look deep into this stuff and go, hey, man, this is what I'm up against. Mm -hmm. And when you can start getting close to that, then you can start getting close to it. And when you start getting close to it, you might just get close to the whole thing and make it happen. I don't know. It's like everybody's different, but mm -hmm. you got to be real. You know, you can't just have these cornball songs that you can start out there. Right. And grandma and somebody else might dig those tunes, but like if you want to be a commercial professional writer, I don't care if you're doing rap, and look at how hard that scene is. That's mm -hmm. very, I mean, you know all about that stuff. Mm -hmm. People that write rap off, I mean, I may not like some of the sentiment in the lyrics, you know, at times, mm -hmm. but I don't really like negative anywhere. I can't listen to a lot of beer drinking songs. She left me and I died. I mean, I can't, I, I, you know, I, mean, I can't really listen to too much of that, you know. Yeah. But rap is very amazing. And then you look at what's going on in pop music. It's uh -huh. gigantic, whether it's uh, Marie and the Diamonds. And uh, so you look at what you're up against. And you just count the cost. It's like, it's like the thing in the Bible, you know, before you go to build this thing, you need to count the cost. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people have left here really destroyed. And I like what this one guy said the other day. He said, nobody's going to believe in you like you believe in yourself. Mm -hmm. And we almost have to be animated in that crazy belief about anything we're trying to do. And as we do it in that way, that's when the crazy stuff happens. So did you feel like it almost destroyed you? You weren't ready? or? Oh, no, it was, it was, it was great. My thing, and this, this will sound really like, like, I'm making it up, and I'm not. I mean, because I had to come to grips with this, and it's a lot of my story right now. I kept writing stuff that kind of was for me, but wasn't really the target. And I don't mean like the, like there's a target, it's homogenized or something. No, no, there's there were people out there that love music like I love music. You can name all those artists. And I wasn't like digging on what they're doing as a writer and come, kind of like being fused with them as being a fan. You know, and that's how I believe I did it. I don't think I ever really did like, well, if I write this, because I'd hear people talking bad about artists like Kenny and people like that, and I'm like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. How do you ever think you're going to get a cut with him? Right. Music's spiritual, and it translates, and it's like, right. you know, you have to love something to do it, you know, and, and I think that's why I got Kenny cuts, because I loved him back when he did the Tin Man, mm -hmm. you know, and I stand, and then uh, Tim McGraw stuff way back, you know, Don't Take the Girl and things like that, right. but I mean, I mean, even more along with him, it got into things like, one of these days, you're going to love me, and, you know. Well, yeah, let's talk about that, because I remember me and you both used to wrestle with this, that, you know, we, we really loved, like, Mark Hurd and Bill, oh, yeah. Bill Maloney, the Vigilantes of Love. Still do. And... You hear that stuff, and you're like, I want to do that. Yeah. But then, you know, you can't do that. It's just two different genres. And right. You can't write a, a Mark Hurd song and expect, you know, somebody, a country artist to, to record it. And you kind of get, like, where do you where do you go? You got to eat. All that art versus commerce. How did you settle on where you settled and, and you're at peace with yourself and proud of what you've done? You take a John Fogarty, okay? Mm -hmm. Here he lost all the rest of his music, and now he's lived long enough he's got it all back now. Mm-hmm. Things come around. I'll never met, never forget this. I was at BMG and Michael Perry was in there as far as, as, far as Christian music. Mm -hmm. And I, I was in there and I said, I said, and this is when I was making predictions and they were coming true, dude. Not a lot, just a few. And I said, man, I said, Christian music is going to explode. It's going to take off. And dude, it hadn't yet. Mm -hmm. Six months later, I was talking to Mar about this. They had a 50% increase in revenue. It was exploding. Cademan's Call was going platinum. Mm -hmm. 
Third day was going platinum. And this is something you can ask Michael Perry. I said this. I said it's going to blow up. And it did. Then Switchfoot came along. And then all these other kind of things that are happening came along and stuff. And all of a sudden, and then all of a sudden they go back. And now all these guys that own all these old catalogs, like you want to talk about, who's our guy, Steve Taylor, people like that. Those guys, they sold their catalogs and made a lot of money. Mm -hmm. A lot of money. Bob Carlisle did Butterfly Kisses and made a lot of money. A lot of money. Mm -hmm. I think things really come around and they change and they happen. And it's, and it's a good thing. So my point I'm making is as far as Mark Mark Hurd and Bill Maloney, let's just look at it for a quick second. Baby, it's a Those guys are unbelievable lyricists and they're unbelievable writers. Their recordings, like Mark's recordings, there's too much reverb. Mm -hmm. Leonard Skinner wouldn't be here today if somebody didn't have the wherewithal to go, we need to take all this wet out of this. They got that real flat, not flat, but that real, and that's why Leonard Skinner stuff, look at Alabama, they're unbelievable, but their stuff is so full of reverb, mm -hmm. it just doesn't fit into the thing right now. Mm -hmm. You could always add reverb, but they want to dump that reverb on it because they, they think that's the magic oil from the, I don't know what, the little pumpkin queen. I don't know where it comes from. <laughs> you know, and look what it does. Oh, yeah. But the thing with Mark is a lot of his stuff has too much reverb. But man, when you take out, like I did one day, the sleeve, and I've got all his records right there, mm -hmm. almost every one of them. Mm -hmm. You take that sleeve out and read to the Mosaics record and read those lyrics. This guy was profound. But I think with him, melodically, he was brilliant. He kind of got away from the eye of the storm, the, the James Taylor kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And when he finally broke, like Johnny Cash did here at the very end, not that Johnny needed to do anything else to be great, he did those American records uh -huh. with uh, Rick, uh, Rick Rubin, those last three records, how incredible they are. Mark did that same thing. Yeah, Dry Bones Dance, Second Hand, and Satellite Sky. Satellite Sky, I don't think it was mixed good. Right. But when you listen to this cassette that I have a copy of, the more organic sound that has like that sound is amazing. Mm -hmm. That record, someday... Those songs will be in soundtracks. Someday his children will see money from those if they have the, the uh, copyrights. I'm telling you, someday the great things that what Maloney's done, mm -hmm. Bill, he's so incredible. They were both kind of a little bit dark, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? But they were still brilliant. And I just really believe that there's people like that they are going to have their day. Why is joy something I must steal? Starving skeletons looking for a meal Out in the graveyard, church bells Earth has no sorrow, heaven can't heal. It's like a merry-go-round that comes around to work to your time. You know, when I came here, it wasn't my time. I was not going to write these little ditties. I wasn't going to write these country beer drinking. They, I couldn't do it. I actually panicked about it. I thought, well, then what am I going to do if I can't do this? And every time I tried to do one of those songs, they sound like crap. Mm -hmm. But the guys that did them were great. They were great. I mean, and, and some of them I really loved. I mean, a lot of them I loved. But I mean, it's just not you. It wasn't me. Right. I loved when I heard stuff. Dwight Yoakam, when I heard him forever move to Nashville, I thought, this guy's amazing. But of course, I never could do that. I, he was just looked like a star. Just looking at him, he was like a star back then. I was mm -hmm. like, he's a star. And I didn't even know what a star was. And then I looked over here at Steve, at uh, Steve, what's his name, Guitar Town. Uh, Steve Earle. Steve Earle. And I got that record. I was like, oh my God, mm -hmm. this is amazing. And I knew I could never do that. But I wanted to be that or, 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 or a Steve Forbit. Yeah, somebody great yeah. like that. But the point was, what happened for me was, is that I began to just begin to write like, we just took a chance. Mm -hmm. And the melodies you hear on a lot of these songs, they're my melodies. I'm not like, you know, poo-pooing anybody about melodies. But I knew they had to go somewhere different. They had to be, they had, something different had to happen. And that's the only way I survived was because I did what I could do. You know, and I've written a lot of lyrics, you know, songs that'll never get cut. I have a song called This Gun. And I mean, that song is incredible. This gun feels cold and restless in my hand, just like the thoughts running through my mind. 
you know, and I know no one's going to understand why I'm about to walk across that line, but I don't want to hurt nobody. So just hand me the money and I'll be headed down the road. And I know that it's wrong, but I'm already gone. You know, so just take it nice and slow and don't think for a minute that I won't pull this trigger. No, don't take a chance on me because I don't want to hurt nobody. And you don't want to know my story Cause it might sound too much like yours And I don't want to feel your pity When I'm walking out that door and the other day I was with a guy writing, Lee Bryce had that song, was going to cut it, this country guy. And I was writing with this guy, and he was talking about songs. I said, yeah, I wrote a lot when I was kind of out not doing the Nashville thing. And I said, I wrote a song called This Gun. He goes, This Gun? He said, I said, yeah, Lee Bryce was going to cut it. He said, Lee Bryce still has that song. He played that for me. So you never know what's going to happen. Right. And then we wrote a song called This Town. This Town will make you polish up your boots, pack up your best suit, put a thousand miles of highway between you and the ones you love. And this town... I'll make you sell your daddy's guitar, sleep in the back of your car, dreaming out the window at a sky full of stars. And oh, take all you can give it. And oh, how quickly they forget it. And this town will make you reach down to the place where the sound of a true song is born. And this town will bring you to your knees and make you beggar please. And baby, don't leave me. In this town, there are all kinds of people put that on hold. Tim put it on hold. Faith put it on hold. The girl from Sugarland put it on hold. Nobody cut it. This town will make you reach down to the place where the sound of a true song is born. This town will bring you to your knees, make you beg to please. Baby, don't leave me in this town. Oh, yeah. yeah, I've done stuff and I do things like that mm -hmm. that I have to creatively. Mm -hmm. But then, like, when I allow that kind of like stuff to come into what I'm doing, mm -hmm. you know, it's like I don't have any problem uh, putting on the shoes of what's going on right now. Yeah. You know, the jury's still out. Mm -hmm. But I still feel like, you know, I heard songs like what Josh Keir wrote, you know, there's a neon line at the end of the tunnel, tunnel. Just cool things that felt good. I want to hear this guy, uh, oh, what's his name, that John Party, with his stuff, you know, if she ain't in it and things like that. And uh, things like Old Dominion, you know, uh, a song for another day. You know, I mean, there's just so many great songs. Once you're challenged by it and once you love it, you can go do it, you okay. know, and that it's hard, but and it takes time, and maybe I'm wrong, I'll find out, but if you don't love it, though, you're not going to do it, you know, and you have to be willing to change and take advantage of some of the stuff they're allowing people to do right now that they didn't before. We'd do something crazy on a track, and they'd be like, ah, hey, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. Now you can do it. I don't know how your sweet touch made me feel again I don't know how you know don't know how you go everywhere I've been. Okay, at some point, someone offers you a record deal and it, as a singer and artist. So explain that. Well, uh, mine's a little different. Um, basically, I was in the studio one day and Chris was in there doing a song that him and Bob Regan had done. And it was called You Will Always Be Mine. It just sounded incredible. And I said, Chris, I said, I never would do this. I'll sing that for you. He said, you would? I said, yeah, I'll sing that for you. 
I said, I love it. So I sang it for him, and we just really got a great vocal and everything. Well, I didn't know this, but Chris had taken it to uh, James Stroud and uh, Scott Bruschetta over at DreamWorks when they were over there. Uh, Scott owns and runs his own record company now. I think it's uh, Big Machine or something like that. It's a big company, uh, Taylor Swift. And they heard it, and they were interested. And also, Chris was really hot as a writer. He had amazed out at that time. And they believed in Chris, too, but they wanted to let him do something. So Chris worked it out. We got together, had a meeting, and um, we started making that record. That was a little different. What was the name of the record? It never had a name, and it was never finished. Um, we cut half a record, and... You know, um, why do you think it never went anywhere? Well, see, that gets a little sticky, man. It's like, I mean, I had some ideas about it, but it's kind of personal. You That's know, fine. it's like, you know, like my weight and stuff like that. But, you know, I was trying to do that and work towards that, but maybe not as hard as I should have been. Right. Scott was great, and, and Scott was really supportive, and so was James. But there was another character over there that uh, was a real bummer, man. Uh -huh. And uh, kind of just, just kind of killed it from the get go, you mm -hmm. know, when we came out on this thing. But and one of the things about it that was really cool was, um, was going in the studio, went out to, uh, I think it was called Big Boy or something like that, almost like Bob's Big Boy or something like that, but it was Dean Elefante's studio and John Elefante, I think they bought it from like, I don't know how they bought it, but I mean, I think, you know, uh, John had written a bunch of songs for the last couple uh, Kansas records after uh, Steve Walsh had left. But um, and that, where was I going with that? Anyway, yeah, so we went in there and we got to do that and it was a lot of fun. James came in a little bit on that and uh, helped out and it was a lot of fun, you know, doing it and cutting the record, but I never really felt like it was going to, I don't know, it was just a really weird deal. Okay. And don't let those rain clouds try to slow you down now. Cause baby, you were meant to be anything you can dream. But eventually you went on to record a record. Yeah, they were just independent little things we did. We, uh, uh, Justin Weaver, that's like one of my best friends. He produced the Scarecrow record, which was great because, I mean, oh, man, the people, you know, Joe Chimay and we had David Throner who mixed the tracks. Was, I mean, you know, the guys work with Matchbox 20 and John Lennon and all those kind of people. And then we had uh, Vicki Hampton came in and along with uh, this, there was another lady that came in with her that was incredible that sang backgrounds. Um, we had some of the best players in Nashville. Did you make that record just to, to sell on your own or was it yeah. to get some of the songs cut maybe? Well, or? I... I you know, I think that record was really a creative thing. I mean, I, I really believed in Justin as a, as a producer, and he's so good at this stuff. It was already really great in the studio. And I said, dude, I said, I'm going to do this thing. I said, will you produce it? You know, because, I mean, you're just really good in the studio with mm -hmm. talking to these guys and stuff. And plus, we were just buds, and, and we could, you know, tell each other to, you know, take a hike and it'd be okay. And um, he came in and he did, and that's one of the reasons I got Justin to do it and stuff like that. But it was a creative thing. And Justin and I wrote songs on this, too. Mm -hmm. You know, we'd written songs together on this, and... Um, one of the songs we wrote together was a song that Meatloaf cut, which, if anything weird came out of that record, that was great. Was really, Meatloaf, Meatloaf. <laughs> Can I speak talk English today? <laughs> Meatloaf, you know, we got a phone call that Meatloaf. Uh, he liked uh, the song uh, "40 Days" and he recorded it. It's gonna And I actually met him at Sony, man. He was super nice. He was 64 years old when I met him. And he was so cool. We talked about Leap of Faith. He's still alive, right? Yeah. Okay. He's, he's awesome, dude. Yeah. He's one of the coolest guys. I mean, he was in Fight Club. Yeah, yeah. He was in Leap of Faith with Steve Martin. He's been in other movies and stuff. And uh, and he's he's torn and stuff. And the guy's loaded. I mean, he has a Learjet. He's just, back in the day, they were like, they sold all these records. And, you know, and Meatloaf's 
maxed out all his credit cards. Like, they made it look like he was impoverished. It's like he went on to do really well. He's a uh -huh. smart cat. But uh, he was really nice and stuff, answering uh -huh. questions. He actually talked about uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I'd asked about him in the movie because that was one of Philip's first roles. And he said, yeah, Philip was mad at the end because when Steve left, he left the jacket. The last scene was supposed to be Philip coming out wearing that jacket. And they changed it. And uh, he said Philip was in the room next to him. And they were in an actual hotel on location. He said Philip was just throwing stuff all over the place. He was pretty upset about that. Uh, and I was like, I was upset too. But I still was just a gigantic fan of Philip's, his movies and stuff, right. things that he did. Okay, so you had some other cuts. Uh, yeah. Like, so Gary Allen was one. Yeah, we had Clint Black. Uh, we had Lone Star cuts. I mean, there before, uh, you know, I kind of like went through a change. Um, I had a couple cuts. One was Joe Nichols, a song called Believers. 89 years old and a mama still prays That her wayward son will find his way There's a telephone call that makes her cry it's her son saying, Mama, I've seen the light. And at that time, I was with a publishing house where I really needed something to happen, you know. That didn't really happen, you know, and things like that. That's just the way it goes. And I love Joe, and I'm so glad when he came out with other stuff because he's such a great singer and stuff like that. He had uh, that really big hit, that yeah, 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 you know. I mean, you have to hear it to appreciate how they use yeah, and it worked. <laughs> I mean, tell them, yeah, we got a title, it's called Yeah. And we're going to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you listen to how they if right. pull that record up, if, if you keep this, because uh -huh. it's badass. It's uh -huh. really a great song. And then we had a uh, cut with Gary Allen, which is really cool. He cut a song called Get Off on the Pain. country yeah. track. Yeah, Justin and I wrote that with uh, Brett James. So, and then that really didn't do anything. And uh, so we started running out of gas with that publishing deal. BMG had got bought out by Universal, and then I was at Universal, and then I left Universal and went to Sony. Probably should have stayed at Universal. So I went over to Sony, and everybody was really great and stuff like that, but I was overwhelmed because I had no songs. And it's like, you know, just making a lot of money, you know, and I had to write songs. And then this is where I... I really started losing what would be um, my mantra, you know, or what would be my uh, philosophy on writing. Developing a negative attitude, um, not really aiming at the target at all, not networking and uh, taking advantage of the opportunity I, to, to proliferate and get around other people who could begin to like maybe just infuse or breathe some life into, you know, what I may have already known, but was just, you know, not totally getting a handle on. No, were you still writing with your team of Marv and Chris and Amy? No, not at that time. Because uh, Marv and I had been writing a lot, and we had taken a break because we were writing, you know, and we needed to. You feel like you were writing the same song over and no, over? No, just we, we just just we were doing this thing where it was like an every Friday kind of thing, and we did it for a while. And it's like, and, and, it, and it would be it was real open. If you couldn't make it, that's fine. And so we decided to stop doing that. So him and I weren't really writing at that time, which was completely cool because you, you need to take a break from people, mm -hmm. you know. People need to take a break from their spouses, you know. I mean, I'm not saying move away forever, but yeah, or, maybe go or, watch TV in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't go watch TV in the neighbor's basement yeah, with the neighbor's wife. Yeah, that's not going to work. That, that TV show is going to get canceled. 
But, and it's a great thing for me now. When something comes and it doesn't look like the way you do it, so many times, like, the show-up thing is great, and I've had success with the show-up thing, because there was one person one time who, and I'm jumping tracks, but just very quickly, that just really bugged me, but we had a day in the book, and I remember my dad said, and I can't tell you the title of the song, but people would know it if they were country fans. He said, if you say you got to do something, do it. So I went anyway, and we wrote this great song that got on our record, and it was just great. It was really, a lot of things happened with that song, too. I'm going to throw some questions and yeah. see if anything okay. sticks. Like, did you burn out? Did the industry change? Well, you know, it's funny because I look at that time, and I was just looking at some songs the other day because I'm trying to, like, you know, have those for reference. And I, and I think what was happening was we were writing stuff that was meh, okay? But then we were writing songs like The Older I Get that me and Justin wrote that is a gigantic song, dude, and never got cut. The older I get, the more I feel the things that hurt, the love that's real. There's where I've been, and there's where I'm at. All a lot has changed, and nothing has. You know, Alan Jackson was looking at it. George Strait was looking at it, you know. You know, I'd have songs like that that were really great. You'd have songs like, yeah, you tried. Mm -hmm. It's okay. But you have a song like that, like, why? Me and Justin had a song, you know, it's called Getting Good at Being Lonely. So sometimes you wonder, are they pitching your stuff? But at the same time, the last part of that road coming to an end, we did have things that did, like, you know, Believers was something that, you know, because we had great pictures, you know. Both those songs, the Gary Allen song and the Joe Nichols song got cut because of the, the pictures at the studio. So I don't blame anybody, but right. I think what happened was is that, you know, I would hear something, like I'd hear something on a record and go, man, I need to be doing that. I'm like, well, why aren't you doing it, mm -hmm. you know? And I believe that I was literally in the process of trying to like turn this thing around and get my head right. I bumped into a couple of people where there was some, you know, hard feelings and we were like mending fences and stuff. And I was just trying to get a phone call. And the phone call was that, hey man, you know, uh, blah, blah, I was up in New York and right now we can't do this anymore or whatever, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, and that was like it. Yeah. Explain like. Well, it was like that was it. They were, they were not going to pick up the next option. You know, so and they actually, yeah. Then they actually did end up pick, picking up the next option, which I can't give you details about that. But then we did part ways on the last option. Uh -huh. So, and what happened was, and that was all understandable. And I'm not saying this is some kind of disclaimer. Mm -hmm. Totally grateful to everybody involved over there. Great people. Everything. Was it great. ran its course in your mind. I just I failed them. You know, okay. and, and that's not like a self-deprivating statement. It's the bottom line. The bottom line is I failed. They did everything they could do for me. Mm -hmm. The money, the place to write. The opportunity, everything, I felt, and uh, and it took a little while for me. I knew that going out, but it took a little while for me to really, you know, just sheep that one up, you know, that speedball. <laughs> but anyhow, um, and when I did, it was good, you know, because I survived, and um, and I realized all of that. And it, the only weird thing was, it was really no way for me to apologize. You know, I kept wanting to say, "Hey, look," and the people are like, "Nah, you don't need to do that. Don't worry about it." But I wanted to because I'm very personal when it comes to people. So anyway, so I'm out of that deal, and then the big mistake I made at this point was that um, I was desperate and I didn't have any new songs. You know, and I had income so from catalog and stuff like that and I was like, why didn't I just get focused? Once again, you know, you gotta have counselors around you. Uh -huh. And at that time, I wasn't saying I was abandoned but I was a little bit like on an island. Let's just put it that uh -huh. way. And especially when the ship's going down, you know, it tends to, like they say, suck other things down with it. Mm -hmm. So when a ship's going down, people tend to start paddling the other direction and I completely, <laughs> totally, 
I understand it. One hundred percent understand it. Understand it. And there's no hard feelings on my part, you know, with anybody. But anyway, so I wasn't ready. And I think people can smell fear. And I took like three or four really great meetings with great people. And, and then a couple couple meetings with people that I think were just really, I don't know, not good people. Like this one person I met with, I, I, I think really honestly, I think at some point, I don't remember doing it, but they saw me do it. I ran their dog over or something. Cause, I what? Mean, you know what I'm saying? I'm just, I'm just that's oh, a metaphor, yeah. whatever you want to call okay. it. It's like, because there was something there. I'm like, uh, did I stab your dog in the head or something? You know, what did I, what, did, you know, it was just. They really just didn't weird. like you from the get go. Yeah. And I'm like, why are you even meeting with me? Mm -hmm. You know, so it was a couple of those. But then there was these other meetings that were really great. But I didn't have the songs. Mm -hmm. And I was desperate. And I needed to like, and I needed to get back to my faith and trusting and and just just relaxing and just let you know. And we rushed some things and we made some big mistakes. We really did. Then a couple of little things happened, and the next thing I thought, well, you know, maybe I'm not doing this right now or something like that. And then you know, we kind of like move things around. You do this, you do that for income, whatever, all kind of thing. And next thing you know, uh, maybe I need to get a job. Mm -hmm. So I got a job, and I work for a job. I won't tell you where or anything like that. But uh, it was a it was a serious job, man. But it was really great when I got into that job because when I got in there, man, the guy that I talked to, first person was going to put me on this, you know, running a press. Kind of say it was a factory, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Okay. And uh, but a friend of mine worked there, and he said, "Come on out, it's good money, and it's a lot of hours." But it was twelve hours a night, seven days a week, mm -hmm. and it was the kind of money I needed. So it was like a god thing. But when I first came in, somebody had had their arms chopped off out there in a press, and this lady's telling me, <laughs> saying, you know, I play piano, guitar, whatever else I can fake playing. And, you know, they're like, well, you're going to run a press. I'm like, I don't think so. It was really depressing. <laughs> and then my buddy said, no, Brad Taylor wants to meet me. And I said his name, sorry, but Brad's such a great guy. And I met with him, and he said, you know, we talked about everything. He said, man, you know, I like you. He said, I'm going to make you a quality tech. And, like, when I got that job, people were like, other people out there, I'm like, they hate, how'd you get this job? And all I could think of was a God thing, man, mm -hmm. because I was doing basically checking parts, and it was really cool. The only the hardest thing about the job was I had to find the right pair of shoes. My feet were killing me. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I had steel-toed shoes on. I mean, literally, I was taking yeah. four like Advil just to keep my feet from killing me. Finally, I got new shoes. Once yeah. I got new shoes, I was like Superman, dude. Yeah. And I basically checked parts and did that for a while. So I worked there five years. Hard times together was beautiful, but now it's gone. Now, the best thing about any like breakup or you know poverty is you can get a blue song out of it. So during this time, were you still writing songs or were you getting some inspiration? Oh yeah, I was and I wasn't. You know, because I went through different periods. But like I wrote this gun during that time, mm. and I was like, I was because I was real angry about some things. Like, what's going on here? You know what I mean? Not like I was going to hurt anybody, mm. but I took I, I took that anger and I put it into this character. And that's where I could get some lyrics. Well, during that time, it was funny because I did write this one song that was definitely like a bluesy song almost, not blues, but like, and I'll give you the line to it. It goes, today I went and sold my best guitar. The one that rode down here with me in that old car. The one that helped me write those songs for the stars. Today I went and sold my best guitar. Today I got down on my knees and prayed for all the friends who threw me away. 
I can't think of the rest of it. That's you know? great, though. But it was like this whole thing about this feeling of, and I never did sell my best guitar, but um, <laughs> I didn't. I'm, I'm so disappointed. No, I didn't. But, but you did. You, I did you, later sell a really great guitar because well, I had you, to. You, I did you gave money. up on your dream, so to speak, for a while. Yeah. 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 yeah, I did, you know, and it's funny, but here's the weird thing about all this. Maybe it's a great way to end some of this is that it's, it's really crazy. And this is the truth. When I went in there, I felt like God, and I'm not trying to, like, God, mm -hmm. talk to me, but I really felt like God because, and there are very few times I can say this in my life was saying to me that, you know, this is three years, three days in the belly of the whale. And the first three months, I kept thinking, God, you meant months, right? Because I need to get out of here and go back, you know, and, and do something, you know. And three months came and went. And then three years came and went. It got all the way to five years. And I think I could have got out earlier, but I was so used to making that money. You know, having that income and having insurance, I think, paid for. and just. But it was I became addicted to it. Mm -hmm. But it was heartbreaking. I remember one time a guy came up to me and said, man, he said, I Googled you. He at the, said, at he, the factory. He said, what the hell are you doing in here? <laughs> you know, and I said, dude, I can't even begin to tell you that, you know. And it was, and, you know, and this is the truth, and I'm not trying to be a weirdo, but I literally had to walk back behind this this machine, these robots and stuff. I went back there and I cried, man. I mean, I was heartbroken. So I struggled with that, and I kept thinking, what am I doing? I felt like I'd been forsaken, and um, I kept thinking somebody would come rescue me, you mm -hmm. know. Like, maybe one of those artists would be like, Bill's in that factory, let's go get him, you yeah. know. And it's like, that wouldn't have been right. Because, you know, who needed to rescue me was God, you know? And I'll never forget this. There was one night I walked outside these big doors, and the daggone crap is banging and smoky and everything. And, and uh, I went out there, and I looked up in the stars with tears in my eyes. I said, God, and I'll never forget this. I said, God, I said, I want to write songs. And before I could conjure in my mind my own little illusion of God's voice or anything, just as quick as that, it just dropped right in me and said, well, then write some. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, sounded like the Jesus that I know, the Jesus who's real. Serious? Don't mess with them, but at the same time, is real. And uh, and I heard that, and I'll never forget it. So I started writing again. And this is no lie. This is the way this goes. I started writing a bunch of songs and digging deep down in these tents. I just one song. It's called Young Man. It says, Young man, you drink your whiskey with a glass in both fists, and you run through women like a pack of cigarettes. I understand. That's the plan. I get it. And it says, Young man. I'm, and it says, I'm betting your philosophy is take what you can get. And I'm thinking your religion is you ain't ready yet. You know, just just neat lines. I was running right with stuff, you know. And, and that's just one in this, a totally different kind of characterization or song. And I just kept doing these and doing these. And I went and wrote with Marv Green one day. And we got together and we wrote. This is recently? Yep. This is the beginning of this deal we're at now. And I got the time to go down there and write with him and stuff. And he goes, you know what? He said, you know what, man? He said, we got to get you back on the row. He said, you still sound great. He said, you can still write. You know, we sat and wrote this song. I came with an idea and everything like that. And and Marv just basically, I mean, just stood up for me and started inquiring and talking to people. And and uh, he, he talked with uh, with this, with the publisher I'm with now. They, they were, they've been friends for years, and I, and I know him too. And got me a meeting, and uh, which I thought the meeting was terrible. I was scared to death. Oh, crap, you know. I said, I blew that meeting. And uh, like three days later, I got a phone call, and it was my publisher. He goes, hey. He said, you know what, we're interested in you. Mm -hmm. And then I went in, it was really scary, and I had all these new songs, man. I was really working hard on it, like really listening to what was going on, going, it's got to be great, can't be anything, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? I kept trying to find ways of just writing it where it had that little neat sting to it, you know what I'm saying? And I went in there, I scared death and played a bunch of songs for them, and they'd be like, well, who'd you write that with? And I said, well, I wrote it by myself, you know, because nobody's writing with me. <laughs> and they're like, you wrote that by yourself? And I'm like, yeah, it was really cool. So they really dug it and stuff, at least I think they did. <laughs> and it just kind of went from there, and um, it took about three months. 
and uh, I was able to go ahead and get out of the factory and uh, and start writing full time. So do you have any um, songs on hold in that right now? Or? Yeah, well, we got a Tim McGraw cut. Oh, wow. Yeah, he cut one of our songs. I won't tell you the title, I'll tell you later. It's not out yet? No, it's not out yet, but it was it was really exciting. It was just unbelievable. It was so exciting, I couldn't believe it. And we wrote this really unbelievable. It was, it was the four of us back together, the Mark Project back oh, together. Really? Yeah, Chris's studio. Chris has bought this studio now since it's like a million dollar studio. It's beautiful. I don't know how much you pay. So they're still in the game. Oh yeah, they're oh, great. Man. They're rocking and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, Marvin, Chris, and Amy. Yeah, I mean Chris and Amy. They've all had hits and everything. They're doing great. And we just kind of fell back together in a really good way, and that happened. And we wrote that song. We've written another song here recently that we're really excited about. And, I'm meeting a lot of new people. I'm learning a lot when I get in the room with people. And I'm meeting people that are really talented. And I'm realizing what I wish I'd realized in the beginning, that this thing really, for me, was about community. And I think I would get in and go, hey, why do I have to do this? Like, mm -hmm. I felt like I had to, all these co-writes I went into, I felt like I had to bring it. Mm -hmm. People weren't always bringing it, you know, or whatever, mm -hmm. you know. And I'm like, who cares? Who cares who brings it? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe you're bringing it because you're in the room with those people, you mm -hmm. know. And I believe that. And it's like, I really believe that because I know it. I know it's a fact. And because uh, people, everybody does something. Who would think that you could write a song, you know, you name the babies and I'll name the dogs. And that song is brilliant. Mm -hmm. From this side to this side, it's just, you know, it's just a great song. It's awesome, dude. I wish I could have wrote something like that. <laughs> so you write everything down, man. Yeah. And then, you know, you start working on your melodies. You start listening to music. You start saying, hey, man, am I doing what they're doing? Mm -hmm. Not exactly what they're doing, but am I doing something that I want to, would I buy this? If I heard this on the radio, I mean, just be really, really honest with yourself, you know. But I realized that, that it's about community, it's about people. Uh, I may be in the writing room one day and somebody just needs somebody to talk to, you know. I'm going to be that person. But I just know all this stuff now because when you're away from something, and the way I was away from it, it's like anything. You look back and you go, oh my gosh. It's like I had everything right there. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reasons, now I'm here. But however I need to do it, I'm going to go from here back to where I need to go. or Either I'm going to go back into what I do or I'm going to go into something else that God has for me to do. And it looks like this is the door he's opened up for me to do. Tomorrow's a brand new day They talk about how the sun will shine While you're standing in the pouring rain Well, that does it for now. If you're interested in hearing more of Bill Luther and his songs, if you go to mixcloud.com, I've put up a mix of some of my favorite tunes performed by Mr. Luther and some of the artists that we talked about today. Just go to MixCloud.com and look up Spun Counter Guy. Also, if you'd like to hear more about Nashville and the country music industry, you might check out In the Corner Back by the Woodpile episodes number six, featuring Bob Morrison, fellow who wrote for the likes of Kenny Rogers, Johnny Lee, and others. And also episode 55, featuring Greg Gehring, an artist and songwriter himself who talks Bill Monroe, Emmylou Harris, Mac Wiseman, and a whole ton of others. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, it's produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by looking up Spun Counter Guy. If you want to say hi or send us nasty words, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. And you can find this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and Podbean.com. We'll see you on the flip side. It's a path you walk alone. It's a road that's bitter and cold. It's the dark night of the soul, and only God knows.